Welcome everybody. My name is Anna Kasakultima and this is GamesNow podcast. GamesNow is an open lecture series run by Aalto University and it has been on since 2013. In the years of GamesNow, we have covered various trending topics in the area of games industry with the help of international experts in their fields. We have invited seasoned speakers in game design, game business, game technology and game cultures to share their insights on what is happening in games right now. This podcast is looking back on those topics. Looking back. On the Looking Back series of Games Now podcast, we are revisiting some of our lectures and reflecting with the speakers what has happened between now and then. On the fourth episode of Looking Back Games Now podcast, we go back to the topic of culturalization in games. In 2017, we invited a leading expert in game culturalization, Kate Edwards, to open up about the ways in which game productions need to address the multitude of their global markets. Kate Edwards is an award-winning industry veteran and geographer, the CEO of Geography, the consultancy which innovated game culturalization, and the CXO and co-founder of Set Cheddars. She's also the former executive director of the International Game Developers Association, as well as the former executive director of Global Game Jam. Let's go and listen what Kate had to say about the global issue of culturalization in games. Hi, Kate. Hi. Welcome back to Games Now. Thank you very much. How are you doing? I'm doing great. It's great to be back on the road again, traveling after COVID and the pandemic and all those things. So, um, yeah, for me, being stuck at home for 18 months, like many people, it was not fun. But for me in particular, because I'm used to traveling so much, it was really not fun. Yeah, <laughs> it, it really took away all of the stuff that you regularly do. It did. So when I was asked to speak at an event in August of 2021, after 18 months of being at home, I just said, yes, I don't care where. <laughs> it was it happened to be in Thessaloniki, Greece. It was not a games event, but um, I was just like, yes, I'll be there. Let's yeah. go. <laughs> so it was five years ago that you were here uh, traveling to Finland yes. at, and giving a talk at Alta University for our Games Now Uh, lecture series. Um, but before we go back to what you were talking then, five mm-hmm. years ago, what are you currently working at? Like, what, what are the things that you are now uh, most excited of your work? Well, it's been, that's a busy five years. I mean, I think five years ago when I was here, I was, I believe I was still uh, executive director of IGDA or I just left, I think. Um, and so when I left the the International Game Developers Association role, I went back to my culturalization consulting, which I've been doing for almost 29 years now. I had been doing it on the side while I was running IGDA, but I just had to kind of like back off a lot because um, I was just too busy. So then I left IGDA, picked up the consulting work again, and um, was basically doing that at the time. But then since then, I was also asked to be executive director of the Global Game Jam. So I took over that organization back in August of 2019. And um, and then, yeah, I, I ran that until March of this year, 2022, and uh, basically 
essentially got it through the worst part of doing a live event, which was the pandemic. So the Global Game Jam had never done a virtual version ever. And actually, when I came on board, they were very adamant that we do not do virtual sites. You, if you want to participate in GGJ, you have to be at a live site which obviously wasn't possible during the <laughs> pandemic. So how do you pivot in a an event that takes place in over 100 countries with almost 50,000 people? Yeah. It's not easy. No. Um, but we figured it out, you know. And so once we got through that, and, and one of the great things that came out of that was understanding that virtual participation was something that we need to continue post-pandemic mm. because it opened up a level of accessibility to Global Game Jam, which didn't exist before. So people who are unable to travel for all kinds of reasons, whether it's economically or accessibility reasons, now they could finally participate. And so we yeah. were really happy that we kind of learned that lesson finally. Yeah. Um, so after I left Global Game Jam, I one of the main reasons I left is because back in late 2019, I co-founded a startup called Set Jetters, which is an, a mobile app that helps you find filming locations around the world. So for those of us who are massive Star Wars geeks or Indiana Jones geeks or whatever, you can go find out and visit where they filmed all these uh, great locations. And so that has been picking up speed, which is really why I left the Global Game Jam earlier this year. Um, I'm still on the board of Global game jam but i just don't have time to run the org so um and then of course the consulting work has been extremely busy as well so it's just kind of non-stop at this point yeah and now back on traveling the thing and that back you love on <laughs> traveling yes it's been kind of i'm pretty much at the same crazy level i was pre-pandemic which i don't know if that's necessarily the best thing but it's <laughs> i know it's something that i like yeah that's good to hear so you had a talk about culturalization and localization on on in 2017, and um, there's there's probably a lot of things that had happened in five years uh, with world politics and and uh, <laughs> you know the, the the changes in the game industry and and the kind of the, the even the growth of the game industry within the past five years. Yes. But before we go to that, let's let's listen to a clip from your uh, 2017 lecture. Okay. So in terms of the game industry and where it's going from here, I mean, I'm not going to talk necessarily about the technology and all of that. We all can, we can talk about that for days and weeks. But what I'm talking about is mainly from a perspective of international and of localization. So if you don't know it, basically 50% of the industry's global revenue comes from localized versions of the games. That is a lot of money. A lot of money. A lot of developers I talk to have no idea that that's how much money is made from localized versions. Now, if you look at companies like PricewaterhouseCoopers, they do an annual projection on interactive media and where it's going and how much it's growing. Their projection, which was about a year ago, they say the global industry growth is still almost at 5%, which is pretty good um, for any, any industry. And they're saying within the next three years, we're going to get up to about 90 billion US. Um, I think there's a lot of estimates that actually make that a lot higher. The amazing thing, though, is that a lot of the, that growth, as you might expect, is not going to be coming from traditional markets. It's not going to be coming from North America. It's not going to be coming from Europe. A lot of that's going to be coming from emerging markets like Nigeria, Kenya, India, Vietnam, and elsewhere. Look at these double-digit numbers. I mean, it's amazing to see that projection. Now, granted, a lot of that is going to be mobile because people in these markets, you're, you're not going to be buying a console in India, it's not practical at all. Even having a PC is not that practical in some places. Um, but yet, there's still going to be a, a huge amount of growth. 
China, of course, is all, also, as we all know, is a massive market. It seems like a lot of us in the industry now are doing pretty much everything we can to be appealing to China. It's not easy to do, which is part of what we're going to be talking here today about. But nonetheless, the growth, even over the next few years, is still going to be very substantial for China. And of course, again, mobile is where a lot of that growth is going to be seen. So you can see how China, which has been known for a very long time now to be a very strong PC gaming market, that's going to be overtaken by mobile very quickly in the next few years. And so, um, so things are changing. Um, now, a lot of people know what localization is. We talk about a lot in the game industry. Basically, localization has been around for decades um, in the software industry, not just games, of course. So you make your software, you want people to be able to, to read it in other cultures, so you translate it. For the most part, that's what localization is. For people who are localization professionals, I'll get into an argument with them about what that really is. But from my experience and my involvement with localization for many years now, it's primarily the translation part. Now, a lot of companies, though, are starting to realize it's not just about translation. It's about designing content that is actually going to work for the culture, not just be legible. The legible part's important, but you have to start thinking about what is actually going to work in these different markets. A lot of times, translating is not good enough. You have to actually think about the game design and think about the overall strategy of what you're creating to see if it might be appealing to other cultures. Now, at some basic level, you're hoping that all human beings are just going to find appeal in that game and just play it. I think there's games that we can point to out there that have that success. I mean, I honestly, I think Angry Birds is a good example of it. The game mechanic is super easy. You require virtually no localization. All you do is pull your finger and let go. And that's a, that's a game mechanic that is very easy for most human beings to understand. And it helps the game to be, to have a more universal appeal. Of course, there's a lot of other factors in there about how the game got out there to the world and discovered, but that is one aspect that was really important. So a lot of companies are starting to think more about what do we do beyond just the translation part. Now I'm going to give you an example of the difference between localization and culturalization. I'm going to use KitKat bars to, to illustrate. So the top, um, these are basically the exact same product. You can see the top one is actually from Canada because the packaging is in English and French. And then the bottom one is Japanese. As you can see, there's Japanese characters there. So these are essentially the same product, a different wrapper. So that more or less is what localization is. So localization helps makes the concept legible. You can understand that it's strawberry in English, French, and Japanese. Now, one of the things they've done, oh, sorry, that uh, text was a little too big. One of the things they've done in Japan, though, is they've culturalized the Kit Kat in, in a way that no other country has done. And it's a really interesting phenomenon. So you can see how what they've done is take the Kit Kat bar and made it a more culturally, culturally relevant experience for the Japanese. So they've actually regionalized the flavors. Like in the North Island of Hokkaido, they have Yubari melon Kit Kats and also baked corn Kit Kats. And that's because people on that island like those flavors more than some of the other uh, flavors out there. And so they, you can see they've made all kinds of flavors of Kit Kats. And you can actually travel around Japan collecting the Kit Kats in different parts of the country. And I have some Japanese colleagues who've admitted that they've done exactly that very thing. They didn't want to admit it, but they said that's what we like to do. Um, 
And so, you know, that is the kind of underlying part of the Japanese culture, which it is a collector culture. There's a very strong aspect of a lot of Japan's uh, cultural activities and games and whatnot that has a collector aspect to it. That's why something like Pokemon is not a shock at all coming out of Japan. It makes complete cultural sense with, with a lot of the way a lot of the way uh, Japanese people play games and do other activities. So um, this could easily be turned into a game if you want it to be. So that's a little bit of a difference. So they've basically taken Kit Kats and made it a completely unique cultural experience for Japan in a way that doesn't exist anywhere else. Now there's two types of culturalization that I typically have to deal with. The first is reactive culturalization. So this is typically um, finding things or identifying things that's going to be a problem in the game. So this is what, as a consultant, this is usually what I get paid to do. So companies say, we need you to find stuff that's going to piss people off or have the government ban the game or whatever that might be. It could be a symbol, it could be a gesture, it could be a costume design, it could be something in the story, you name it. It's all kinds of different stuff. So like, for example, in PUBG right now, I'm look, running around trying not to get killed looking at the graffiti on a lot of the walls and a lot of the stuff that's inside the actual buildings uh, around the island. Um, proactive culturalization, though, is where we actually try and take what we know about a culture and see if we can enhance the game in a way that's actually going to make it a better experience for those local players. So for example, when I worked on Forza Motorsports, we had different language versions of the game and we tailored the types of cars you can get by language. So for example, in the Italian version of the game, the default car set was almost all Italian cars. Whereas in the US English version, it was they had a lot of US muscle cars like Mustangs and Corvettes and things like that. Now, of course, you could go online and get the DLC and get any car you wanted, but there was a Set, you know, a default set that came with the game. And so we tailored those car sets to the different languages. And that's a form of proactive culturalization so that players are getting something that they generally want to play or want to see. Now, here's, here's a more specific example of reactive culturalization. And you might recognize this. This is the Brahmin from uh, Fallout 3. And this was a mutated Brahmin bull that wandered through the post-apocalyptic Washington, D.C. landscape. And um, this is a big problem for India, because in India, they have laws that protect Brahmin bulls from being harmed. Now, there, that law applies to real Brahmin bulls, not virtual ones, but there was enough concern, because this is a sacred animal in the Hindu faith, they didn't want to take that risk of releasing the game. Now, we went back to Bethesda and we said, hey, can you guys swap this out for something like my really poorly, poorly, uh, poorly photoshopped two-headed horse? And they said, no, we can't do it. We don't have time to do it. It's not important enough. We don't care if we sell in India, which is really unfortunate because there's the, that's, yes, it's a smaller gaming market, but it's growing very, very fast. And it's one of those ones where if you get a foothold in there, you become like a large AAA title that actually releases in India. That's a really big deal. And players will remember that the next time you release a product because they'll say, look, they, you watched out for us. You released something for us and we really appreciate it. Um, now, another example of, um, for proactive culturalization in the same market in India, Marvel Comics actually partnered with a local uh, comic studio to make this culturalized version of Spider-Man for India. And, um, you know, so at first it was praised a lot because people said, this is a cool idea. Look at, they've, they've done this, you know, interesting cultural version of Spider-Man from the waist up. He's pretty much the same, but from the waist down, he has more of a, a folk costume that's traditional in India. 
But ultimately, this didn't do that well. And the reason it didn't do that well is because when you're dealing with a really famous you know, intellectual property like Spider-Man, what people want is Peter Parker in New York. They want the original. They don't really want this culturalized version. And so this particular experiment didn't work. But I still think it was great that they tried, because they're at least trying to see if there's a market. So it doesn't always work, but sometimes it might. Now, there's three degrees of culturalization that the way I see it. And so, um, so I already mentioned reactive culturalization. And then the second one is localization and internationalization. So most people who deal with international issues in games, the step two is what they're more familiar with. So the translation and the internationalization is basically like using like Unicode um, to make sure that all the characters in your game are going to be compatible across different languages. Just simple things like that, date formats, calendar formats, all that kind of stuff. That's internationalization. Um, so that's what most people are familiar with. So reactive culturalization first. Then you do localization, internationalization, and then you try and do proactive culturalization. And if you want to make this look at it from a more simple standpoint, you first you want your game content to be viable, which means you want it to stay in that market. You don't want the government to ban it. You don't want consumers to get upset at it. And that can happen whether or not your game is translated or not. It doesn't matter, because I've seen games actually get in trouble when they were never even intended to be sold in a specific market. Um, it's just that the game found its way there, either through like the gray or the black market, and the government got notice of it, and they got upset about it. So you still have to be careful. And we'll talk about that point a little bit later. The second thing is to make it legible. So if the game you intend for the game to stay there in that market, then it would be helpful to have the, a language version, um, if that's what people want. Obviously, in some markets, like I know in the Nordic region, there's a lot of players want to play the original English version. They don't really want a translated version of the game. Whereas in other markets, they strictly want translation. In other mar markets, they don't want translation, but they want subtitles. You know, so they don't want voiceover, but they do want subtitles. So there's all these different methods um, to do the, the localization. And then the third level, which is more tricky, is to try and make the content meaningful. And then again, that's back to proactive culturalization. How do you make your game content meaningful for the players in different markets? Now, some of that, again, is going to come through just the game design by itself. You've made a game that has a universal appeal, and it's going to find its meaning because it kind of resonates at a human level, but that doesn't always work. So, so what we're basically trying to do, we've got game worlds. It's interesting what's happening over there on the right. Um, so you have game worlds that you're building, and you've got local worldviews that you're dealing with, with the different players and consumers and governments out there, and you're trying to combine these things together. That's kind of what I help game uh, companies and developers do. So it's kind of a gene splicing exercise where you're trying to build these, work these things together and end up with culturalized content that actually works in these different markets. This is the tricky part. So this is where I help, where you have this zone where some of the issues are going to be compatible with the, with the local market and some of them will not be. Most of the time, most of the stuff I see in games that I work on, it's compatible. It's not a big deal. We don't have to worry about it. But I'm looking for that little stuff that may not be compatible, which again tends to be more the reactive culturalization part. So that's where my focus tends to lie.
There we go. <laughs> that's, a, that's a nice, neat package of understanding the differences between localization and culturalization. Yes, it's quite a mouthful too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, but also in the beginning, there were numbers of the kind of uh, pr- uh, pr- um, trying to understand what's going to happen in the future. Mm. Uh, I wonder, like, what are the, the, the things that have now happened within the five years? There's a lot of things that are taking different shapes in the industry. There's there's much more players in the field. Uh, there are different trends and so on and so forth. So like what sticks to your mind or kind of what comes to your mind as, as the, well, the biggest thing that is a change? There's there's several things actually, but the, I think the first, the, my first gut reaction, especially to the numbers is that um, we blew past those estimates that yeah. PricewaterhouseCoopers <laughs> made way back in 2017. Cause we, the, the major thing that they and nobody else saw coming was the pandemic yeah. and they did not see the, the value that games would play during the pandemic because mm. as we know games saw quite a boom period mm. as people were stuck at home looking for things to do mm. you know in the same way that you know all the streaming services like Netflix and Disney Plus saw these incredible record numbers because everyone was stuck at home we in the industry just saw this incredible period where you know it was it was unprecedented I think mm. you know in terms of the absolute spike and how much people were playing. So I think that 90 billion global revenue estimate that they were estimating by 2020, I think it... I think at this point, what we're closing in on 200 billion or something like that at this point, it's it's just way beyond what they were expecting. Uh-huh. So, um, which is, which, I mean, it's both the testimony with, even without the pandemic, I think it's a mm-hmm. testimony to the level that games were being adopted as just another form of entertainment that all humans do to some degree. Um so that prevalence of, of, of adoption. And I think a lot of that was kind of coinciding with a even greater transition to digital delivery, mm. um, which again was accelerated by the pandemic. So I think in my view, the pandemic, as it did with a lot of things, it really was this punctual change moment for human history <laughs> where a lot of things that we already saw coming were just accelerated. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, yay for the game industry. I mean, we, <laughs> we, we, we kind of helped out again, as we know that during times of stress and trauma for the, for the, you know, the, for the globe, um, entertainment tends to prevail. Yeah. Um, digitalization was just kind of took like huge leap with all the generations as well. So exactly. Yeah. So I, I think that's one major trend. I mean, the other part of it that sticks out to me is how back in those days, just like I mentioned on that slide, how China was being viewed as like this holy grail. It's like if you could get your game sold in China and distributed successfully there, I mean, you're you're set. I mean, because mm-hmm. it, it still remains by numbers the world's largest gaming market. But what is fascinating to me is that in these five years since then, it's actually, I would, in my opinion, the appeal of the Chinese market has crested and now it's on the downside. Mm. Um, we just heard a few days ago that Blizzard is going to pull their games, they are ending their games in China, right. which is pretty a pretty strong statement. Yeah, you know that they are they it's going to stop and basically it's uh, not going to be renewed or anything. Mm. And and they were one of the the biggest companies to have that foothold in the Chinese market, you know, successfully. And that's not going to happen. And I think that's kind of a a little bit of a flag for a lot of other companies to kind of step back a minute and say, should we be making all this effort? Um, mm. And what also China has not done very well for itself on the global market in terms of 
reinitiating policies like yeah. not wanting LGBTQ content in their games and other statements that they have made kind of doubling down on some of their restrictions. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of game companies, uh, you know, in, in entertainment in general, they were already kind of on the fence whether or not it was worth selling in China. I know for a fact, especially working directly with many of my clients, which are some of the larger companies in the industry, that motion, that one motion about a year ago by China was enough for them to say, nope, we don't, that's it. You know, mm. forget about China as a market. Um, we're not going to pursue it heavily or pursue it at all because it directly is in counter to our values. Yeah, right. So it's values, but also like a, the amount of work that you need to do and the kind of the surprising factors of things changing constantly and that. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. And, of all. and I think that's that in, so that's, that's a huge, a big factor, actually. I think kind of that attention to China has really started to diminish Yeah, and, and some, some success on the Hollywood side in films that have not released in China and have done very well are helping to prove that point to other mm. forms of creative media. Like the, you know, the fact that Top Gun Maverick was not released in China because of the whole uproar over his jacket, where mm. the jacket in the original film that he wore, which was supposed to be his father's jacket had the Japan flag and the Taiwan flag on the back of the jacket. And then the trailer for Maverick that came out of, uh, you know, a couple years ago, it showed that they had changed it so that it was not a Japanese flag and the Taiwan flag was nowhere to be found because Mm. they wanted the film to be sold in China and Mm. they can't do that with those flags on the jacket. And so there was a huge uproar online and as the film was delayed release because of the pandemic, eventually the producers of the film got the message and said, you know what, we're going to change it back because Mm. a lot of people are pissed off about this. And so they actually went in and CG'd the jacket to be the correct way like it was in the original film and that made the film not release in China, but it still made a ridiculous amount of money. Mm. And that was kind of one of those key signs that a lot of companies are looking at saying, maybe we don't need to sell in China. Maybe <laughs> we can still be successful. Yeah. So I think that was a very interesting uh, little landmark uh, issue that happened. Yeah. So in your lecture, you're talking about that if you want to, like you can always not do the culturalization or changing things on a kind of be so worried about the the other cultures or, or areas yes. and, and, and kind of people or players to be pissed off. Yeah. Uh, but maybe like we were now grown into the point that people do political uh, choices. And even though it's, it's the market driven thinking, there is a, a new kind of thinking in the whole entertainment business. I, I think so. And, and you know, one of the things that I have seen, and I would say the other trend, other than, you know, the numbers that we kind of got wrong, um, mm. <laughs> you know, for good reason. No, They did seem a lot of like big numbers already, like with yeah. the forecast back in five years. Like, is it going to be this big? Yeah, that's but true. Still, yeah. It seemed Bigger. overly optimistic. Yeah. But yeah, then we were like, didn't know what was going to come. But yeah. And then the China trend as well. But then the other trend that I think is more notable to me from the work that I do is that we had, you know, very you know, serious event happened almost, you know, about two and a half years ago, which was the Black Lives Matter Mm. movement that resulted from George Floyd's murder Mm. um, in May of 2020. 
And it's rare in my career, as long as I've been working in games, almost 29 years, there's a few moments of these cultural moments on a global scale that have happened that have caused a certain level of, of a spike in awareness that was not there before. And so like I'm thinking back, like besides BLM two and a half years ago, before that, I would probably cite 9-11 as being the last major kind of punctuated moment of awareness because but prior to 9-11, if you asked around in the game industry how many people understand issues around Islam mm. and, and Muslim practices and Muslim representation, nobody would have a clue. Mm. But then following 9-11, we went through this very intense period of trying to understand how we're representing Islam, how we're representing Muslims in games because there was a lot of games being uh, you know shown um, you know, especially because at that point, because of certain things that had happened geopolitically, especially between the U.S. and the Middle Eastern region, you know, you had a lot of games where people of Islamic background were the villains. Mm. You know, basically mm. they replaced the Soviets, which replaced the Nazis, you know, and so on and so on, because we always have to have a villain. Um, and so 9-11 was this big wake-up call where we had we suddenly had to have a much better understanding of that culture, which had not happened before. Mm. And so fast forward, you know, about 20 years later, when we had the Black Lives Matter movement, which I would say it was it was given more of a voice than it had before. It was, certainly it was around before May of 2020, but it was that event with George Floyd, which really amplified the movement and amplified that particular perspective in a way that had not happened before. And, you know, granted in the United States, there were many, many, many opportunities where that could have happened because there've been injustices against mm -hmm. people of color many times involving police and people of color in many communities prior to George Floyd. So I'm kind of on one level fascinated that it was that particular event that caused this level of, of outrage and uproar. Um, but at the same time, I'm really glad that there was that, that, that reaction because it needed to happen. It was long overdue. And a lot of companies, you know, looking at across the clients I work with, a lot of them were immediately coming to me as part of the culturalization work I do and asking, okay, we need to think about this. We need to really think hard about our African-American representation and black representation in our games across all the levels, visually, narratively, and so on. And so they really kind of stepped back. And it, again, it's exactly what happened post 9-11 with Islam and Muslim mm -hmm. characters. So now we're looking at black characters and representation and say, we need to do a better job. We need to be more inclusive and think about this. And so I thought, you know, from my perspective, I'm overjoyed. I'm like, I've been telling, you know, clients and, and other people in the industry for years or decades that you need to think about this, not just with a specific demographic like Muslims or black people, but everyone. Mm. You really have to think hard. If you're going to have a person from a certain culture, you need to do it well. You need to talk to people from that culture and make sure you're doing it well. And so I was really happy to see that there was this sudden awareness, but I was also really pissed off because it's like, why did it take you so long? Why <laughs> yeah. did it take this for you to understand this? Um, 
so it was, it was really kind of a, a weird period where I'm like really happy and also really pissed off. So, <laughs> but what was interesting to me is after about six months, that awareness evolved into not just black characters, but yeah. everyone. Yeah. So now they're, now they're concerned basically across the board about any kind of representation, um, you know, worried about cultural appropriation and all kinds of other issues. Mm. Now they're getting really serious about, we need to get sensitivity readers from this culture. We need to get consultants from that culture. Um, to help us flesh out the character, flesh out the narrative, and which is essentially the right thing to do. That's exactly the kind of thing I've been guiding them on for a long time. And I often was serving as someone to help find those people to consult on the project. So now we enter a period where after decades of this not happening the way it should, now it seems to be gravitating more towards being the norm Mm -hmm. than the exception. I don't think it's quite there yet, but we're definitely more on a path now than we were even three years ago, I I would argue. And I did not see that coming. So do you think that the kind of this overall uh, trend of diversity is also impacting the way that game companies look at localization, but also now culturalization? I do. I I think that is definitely another trend. I mean, a lot of companies over the last five years have really increased their efforts to be more diverse and inclusive, you know, not only in the workplace, but also in the content itself. And I think that has really started to reflect itself in the game content that I'm working on. Um, You know, a lot of the games, game franchises I work on have, have seen an amazing amount of inclusion in the last few years that just wasn't there before. And, and it's, you know, to be clear, it's being driven by one of two things. On the one side, and usually the initial reaction, which was the same reaction during the, the, the Black Lives Matter you know, issue two and a half years ago, was fear of social media. Number one problem. And that, honestly, for a lot of companies today, I would say the majority of companies, that still remains the, the driving factor. But the outcome of that driving factor is still a positive thing because they want to do the right thing. But the question is, why are they doing the right thing? Out of fear or because they actually believe it's the right thing to do? And unfortunately, like I said, I think a lot of companies as a net, it's a net positive because more companies are doing the right thing. But the only downside is that more of them are doing the right thing because they're doing it out of fear Hmm. and they don't want backlash on social media. They don't want to be canceled. They don't want that to happen to their game Hmm. titles or to the studio. Um, But even that's evolving too, because I'm even in the last five years, or even I would say in the last two and a half years, since we've been dealing with the aftermath of what happened, I would say some companies have already in that short time period evolved their thinking to where they understand that this actually is the right thing to do. Yeah. And and they've gone even as far as rewriting their com- company values mm. to make sure that it includes that in a very strong way. So that that piece is is part of the evidence I'm seeing is that my work is not only focused on the specific issues in the game content, but I've actually been asked by a few of my clients to help them rewrite their values. Mm-hmm. And, and so they can basically be more forthcoming and saying, this is what we stand for. And some of that is in reaction to China mm-hmm. saying, you know, we, if they did not have a statement before about being inclusive, especially about LGBTQ um, uh, demographic and, 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 issues now they say it very clearly and part mm-hmm. of that is in reaction to China's action because they basically say we don't we don't stand with them yeah you know we stand with this so um, and I think that's part of what 
frankly, social media is forcing on companies is a certain level of clarity that wasn't there before because people want to hold people accountable. They want to hold companies accountable for their actions. So um, you're based in in the States, right? Yes. Uh, So a lot of this diversity trends, we we talk about mainly perhaps, I don't know if this this is the right term, but global West, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But do you work with clients from uh, the Eastern part of the world? Uh, that wouldn't necessarily be in the like. The, is the trend also towards the same direction in in other countries? That you know, let's not talk about China, yeah. but let's, for instance, Korea, Japan, mm-hmm. um, South Africa, the, yeah. or the European countries. Like, how, how do you see that from your perspective of traveling around and? Yeah, I, I think that's a great question because it's, yeah, we we tend to focus too much. And especially I, I would argue that the diversity inclusion movement has been definitely driven from a U.S. perspective, you know, and the whole idea of cancel culture and all that is also mostly driven from a U.S. perspective, I would say in general, or maybe say North American perspective. Mm. But um, outside of the U.S. sphere of influence, I mean, I see a lot of uh, companies, especially in Europe, I think. To me, for example, a lot of companies in the Nordic region and Scandinavia were already progressive in that way. They were already thinking in that way. Um, certainly in their workplaces, they are far more progressive than a lot of places in the world, mm. even if that progression in the workplace didn't quite translate to the game content they were creating. Um, but I think they're getting there. They're they're in a better position to make that transition compared mm. to other places. Um, what's interesting, though, is when we talk about diversity and inclusion, when you look at other markets, like the Middle East or Mm. Southeast Asia or East Asia, um, for a lot of these other markets, some of that diversity from a Western perspective is built in because you have teams who are, for example, are, you know, they're all Middle Eastern, they're all Arab, they're all Muslim, you know, or they're all Vietnamese or they're all, you know, Korean. And so what does diversity really mean from that Mm. perspective? I mean, do you expect, for example, a Japanese team living in Japan, which Japan is 98% ethnic Japanese, so there is not a lot of diversity in Japan. Mm. Do you expect them to be diverse? because of the local culture and the, just the local, you know, the history behind the way the demographic exists. So is it reasonable to say that a Japanese development team should be, you know, 50% Japanese, 25% Korean, 25% Chinese? Mm-hmm. It isn't. Mm. It just isn't because... Mm-hmm. That's just not the that's not the market. That's not the workforce in that place. So they have their own challenges where you have teams that are very homogeneous in their composition. So then how do they address diversity? And so what I'm finding, what what it's been really telling to me is I've had, like even in my consulting work, I've had several Japanese companies approach me in the last year to talk about diversity and inclusion in their content, which never happened before. And so I'm really, frankly, kind of shocked in a, in a good way. Because to me, usually, typically, Japan, Japan's development culture has been very insular. They make games for their market. If, if people outside want to play them, great. They play them. If they don't, yeah. they don't. Mm-hmm. Um, but now I'm seeing a certain kind of concern from Japanese companies. Well, we, too, want to make sure our content is not going to be canceled mm-hmm. or have negative backlash against it for something that we're doing. Yeah. Um, I've even seen that from China as well, for companies in China that want to sell their content outside of the market. Um, so there's definitely concern there. But at the same time, I just find it's an interesting balance because that concern that's 
that's being raised in these markets like East Asia, Southeast Asia, and elsewhere, it's it's for their desire to have their content sell in the West. Mm-hmm. That's what's driving that, mm-hmm. to sell in North America and Western Europe. Um, but if they're selling their game locally or with you know outside of that market, there isn't as much of a concern because that whole drive for diversity inclusion and also kind of the backside of it, the cancel culture that goes from not having that isn't just it's just not there as much mm. you know it's just not present as a as a cultural i guess societal dynamic mm. at least i'm not seeing that as much um and so you have you know teams that are diverse within their within their culture that are developing games that they want to sell either within their culture or beyond it and they're just not faced with that same kind of weight i would say mm-hmm. as some of the others that i've seen so it's the other part of it too, which I find really fascinating, is that there is a there is quite an obsession now in the West about cultural appropriation, mm-hmm. um, which is it's a valid concern. I'm not saying I'm not downplaying that. It is a valid concern. Yeah. But what I've seen though, when I talk to like indigenous groups outside of the U.S. or even within the U.S. or North America, when I talk to them about representation in a game, let's say there's a game that wants to use their culture in a certain way and represent it. What I'm finding when I talk to these uh, these marginalized groups or these underrepresented groups is that oftentimes the response I get, because I go to them to basically get their input on the designs and everything, I would say 75% or more out of the time when I show them, they said, well, you know what? It's not perfect. It may not be great. But the fact that we're even being in the game at all mm-hmm. is is really cool. Yeah. So basically, our representation in the game, whereas normally we get completely ignored, the fact that they're even considering representing us is a positive thing, even if they're not doing it 100% right. Yeah. You know, and so oftentimes they'll say, you know, it's basically we'll accept it. But if they could basically just ask us so we can make sure it's done right, then that would be even better. But I don't see the same kind of backlash at all um, that you see coming out of North America. Because there's a game I'm working on right now that I just recently advised on. And the, the team told me that they're having a, quote, big social media problem. And so when we got into the details of what this problem was, they have a game that dealt with Dia de los Muertos, the Day of the Dead holiday in Mexico. Mm. And so they got they were having someone on Twitter yell at them about their designs that they used in the game. Well, it turns out when you really get down to the forensics and understand what was going on there, it was one person, mm. that's it, one person on Twitter who was yelling at them and this person admitted they're not even Mexican. They're not even from that culture. Yeah. The reason that they were yelling is because they did, quote, their own internet research. And so they were basically backlashing against the team based on what they understood the culture was about, even though they're not from that culture. And they don't even celebrate the holiday. So I'm like, is that kind of backlash valid? Mm. You know, is that kind of accusation of cultural appropriation valid? And I would tend to say not really. Mm. Yeah. So I guess there's like a... Um, more and more of awareness that we should look into these topics and then some people that don't even kind of have the the information and understanding of cultural traditions they would get worried on behalf of others yes and then i you know we need much more education (laughs) on these things and kind of i I can see that for instance we had a talk uh from a sami developer Mm. uh 
Mariana Auran and that was saying that, well, you, you, you know, you can, that you shouldn't be afraid of uh, representing indigenous in your games, but you just please ask the, yes. the people so that you, you know what you're doing because her self also had to do a lot of asking because mm. of the lost traditions of her family. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not even always obvious for the ones that have the background that what could be the most appropriate or most positive or best way to do things and or, or correct a representation of, mm-hmm. of certain items, for instance. Yeah. So this is a very interesting times mm-hmm. where... At the same time, we have a high need for accuracy and, and respect, but there might not be a lot of uh, ways and tools to really uh, to that. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think what it really shows is that there's there's a right way to do it now, mm, which yeah. is which is asking these communities for their input directly, and yeah. and let's not. Uh, let's not let, well. Let's be clear. There's a lot of good examples of that happening, like Assassin's Creed Three. The main character Connor is of Cherokee background, so they reached out to the Cherokee tribal groups and got a consultant from the tribal group who consulted yeah. on pretty much everything about the character, including the language. And it's like that was the right thing to do. Yeah. You know, I worked a little bit on the game Never Alone about the the young you know Inuit girl from you know northern Canada with her little snow fox that follows her around. That entire game is based on the culture, you know, uh, from Northern Canada. And the entire thing was basically facilitated and guided by the tribal group. So the dev team, part of which was in Seattle, the dev team was basically just carrying out the wishes of the tribal group in terms of telling the story, which I thought that's the great model to use. Mm. The model we really want to see as we go further in the, into the future is that these communities themselves will have the development skill. Yeah, you know, So yeah. they'll have the opportunity to tell their own stories and to have mm. their own self-expression, You know, which is why we, we celebrate the democratization of video game development, that mm. it's getting easier and easier to do. But you know, it's still not universal. Yeah, we have to, have to give a little bit of time for for this also. Yes, and I guess like if someone is listening to this podcast in the future, uh, a good rule of thumb is that you need to check these <laughs> constantly. Yes. You yes. can't resort to a source that you hear from like if this is like two years from now that you listen to this, <laughs> you really need to check it because things yeah. are changing all the time. Exactly, and, and and to be honest, I mean a lot of the the different groups that you can reach out to, they are usually more than happy yeah. to give advice and to yeah. give guidance. Yeah. yeah, and we learn all the time. Um, so yeah, a lot of things has happened <laughs> in five years, also in world politics. Uh, yes. So how much the the kind of the world political context and crisis impact also also your culturalization work? It, it, it has a severe impact. Yeah. So that's one of the key things I have to look for in my process of culturalization. One of the other factors I'm looking at is basically what are the market conditions for when the game is actually releasing? Mm. So it's not just about the culture in the game as it stands, but then how is that going to be reflected in the local market or the region when it gets released? Because mm. as you mentioned, things change radically. And I think if anything, the pandemic taught us is that the world is a very dynamic place and we have to stay on our toes and, and yeah. be aware of all these changes. And, you know, who who really was, uh, you know, this time a, a year ago, did we really, you know, predict that Russia was going to be rolling into Ukraine? Yeah. And I think most of us would say probably not. Yeah. Um, although there were some signs there. We mm. kind of saw a little bit of things going on, but I don't think we expected it at this scale. Yeah. You know, but even that event is a good indicator because when that happened back in late February, 
a lot of my clients I work with, we we were basically dropped everything, and now we're like looking across all the franchises and different projects and saying projects that have Russian characters or Russian influence or you're talking about Ukraine or it's set in Ukraine or whatever it might be. And it was surprisingly a lot of projects. Mm. And so we were making a lot of very quick decisions about what are we supposed to do in the wake of this, you know, geopolitical disaster that's going on for Ukraine. And so of course, you know, the automatic response is like, we side with Ukraine period. Mm, you know, mm. there's, there's, you know, I did not have anyone say, well, wait a minute, you know, maybe <laughs> Russia's, maybe they just made a mistake. Nobody said that. It's like, no, yeah. Russia's in the wrong. So mm. we have to support Ukraine, uh, which I, I believe was absolutely the right decision. Mm. And, but then we have to see like, what is appropriate? You know, some game companies made the decision to turn off their game servers in Russia yeah. to not support. Um, whereas others were kind of arguing, well, yeah, but Putin and his cronies, they don't play video games. Mm-hmm. So you're not hurting them. You're just hurting the Russian players who maybe they don't even agree with their government's actions. Mm-hmm. But we don't know that. So, mm-hmm. But I think a lot of it was just about the economic activity. We want to mm-hmm. not support the Russian economy, which is really what those actions were about. Yeah. Um, but then we're looking at in-game content. You know, So like the, the NHL game. Um, with EA, we, there was a decision to take the Russian players out of the game. Mm-hmm. You know, so there will be no Russian representation in that game. Um, in other games too, like we had Age of Empires Four, which was having a tournament the immediately the weekend after the invasion, and Age of Empires Four, which I was a part of, um, one of the four main new civilizations was the Rus people. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Rus people, as as portrayed in the game and in the time period, you know, a lot of people out in the community thought that they were the Russians, but they're not. They're the Rus Vikings, which are basically more or less the original Ukrainians. Mm-hmm. But how do you educate people on Twitter about <laughs> that whole dynamic about yeah. history? It's really, really tough. So people are knee-jerking to the name Rus, R-U-S, mm. and thinking, well, they have to be the Russians. So why are you allowing Russians to, you know, the Russian civilization in your game in the mm. wake of this tragedy? And so you have to, you know, basically do your damage control, come up with your plan and strategize and all of that. So basically that first month after the invasion, that's a lot of what I was focused on with my clients is helping them navigate a lot of these issues, which honestly tied back to the values discussion because a lot of, for a lot of companies they don't really have thought about the contingencies about if this happens in the world how are we going to react what mm. line do we draw and make a decision about what we will or won't change in response to that and a lot of companies have not gone through that exercise so they're just completely caught off guard yeah so now they have to go through that i guess yes yeah. exactly yeah, yeah. Um, so there's there's so much to kind of cover here, but I, I kind of encourage everybody everybody to listen to your original uh, lecture. There's a lot of examples on things how things can go wrong <laughs> or things can be successful. But you know, uh, times has pa- times has passed. There's um there's more I guess consultants also in the field to help out. But what would be the kind of a uh, good resources to start from, like if you're an indie developer, you, you can't afford a lot mm-hmm. of uh, consultant uh, services. Mm-hmm. What are the resources to look for, how to educate yourself or kind of do the best possible moves? 
Well, I, I think the the key thing is just having the awareness of this at all is, mm. is a great start. I mean, honestly, sometimes that's 50% of the battle is just yeah. having the awareness because you can do a lot of work on your own to basically think about if you, you're doing, you know, doing a game about real history or a real place or having characters from a certain demographic or whatever it might be, you can step back for a moment and look at it, try and ex- look at it through different eyes, you know, try, just try and pull yourself out of the the really involved intense creative process and just think about are we representing this well i mean if you have women characters and you don't have women on your team for example well why don't you ask women about the representation mm. of your characters or people of color or people from a certain uh, cultural group i'm sure within most of people we have within our communities we probably have people we can reach out to mm. um you can even ask like if you're at a university there's professors at the university from different you know cultural backgrounds and geographic origins you could go ask them and just you know, a lot of times, I mean, I've, I, I've did that um, every once in a while. I've encouraged indie teams to do that, and they've had success with that, where they just go to their local university and, and go to like you know, whichever department and say, hey, you know, could we get a perspective on this? Mm. And um, and that's really all it entails. I would mm. I would encourage that approach versus like asking online. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because you're going to get a, a problem with signal to noise ratio yeah, online. Yeah, yeah. But um, that can often be successful. I mean, I've given a lot of lectures, which um, I'm not saying that the best in the world. I'm saying, but that helps. I mean, like the lecture I gave um, here. And um, there's not a lot of written resources out there. I mean, I've written a lot of like chapters in books, like the Game Localization Handbook has a chapter about culturalization in there um, that was written quite a while ago. Um, I'm also still working on my own handbook, but God mm. only knows when that's going <laughs> to... Everything changes all the time. So. Yeah. Eventually, I'm going to get that done. Yeah. But um, but yeah, it, there, there are resources out there. But honestly, the biggest thing I can encourage people is just be aware of this. Be aware yeah. that this is a, a dynamic that is real. And if you can kind of think through the creative choices you're making... You know, just by being self-aware of those choices and how it's reflected from the cultural societal angle, I think you can you can make uh, a lot of positive changes. You know, or you may not have to change anything, but at least you can put yourself in a position to be go into this fully aware of what yeah, you're doing. Yeah, yeah. So I guess we don't have to warn the the current generation that is fully digital that <laughs> that the the products do spread potentially yeah. so i guess that's kind of already covered but yeah but uh yeah it's 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 still maybe for some indie or lone developers can be a surprise that their game travels far yes yeah. yeah, and and I think it's also important to point out, as I as I believe I did in this lecture, is that you know f- freedom of creativity is important. Yeah, and games are as much of an art form as any other form of creative media. So, I don't think pe- people should shy away yeah. from doing something that could be controversial. Mm. Or, but just make sure you understand why you're doing it. Yeah, you know, and what are you you know if you're trying to like offend a certain cultural group, <laughs> um, why? You know, yeah. what's the point of it? I mean, is there a narrative yeah. behind it that justifies the the position you're taking? Yeah. And maybe there is. I mean, certainly there's been many books and films and other forms of creative media that have taken very controversial positions on different historical or religious topics or other things. And there's no reason a game can't do the same. Mm-hmm. But, but you just need to make sure you understand why you're doing it and what mm-hmm. the consequences might be. 
And, and I like how you said in, in your lecture that most of the time people will assume that that's your intention, even though yes. a lot in the game development is that you are not so much in control how people play them right. or, or what actually how they are perceived. But people might still assume mm-hmm. that you intend it as an insult. So. Oh, they, they usually do. They, I mean, 99% <laughs> of the time, they, they believe you did this for a reason, that yeah. you were trying to be offensive on purpose. Yeah. And, and usually 99% of the time, the developer just made a mistake because they were not aware. Yeah, right. So uh, there are the political, uh, geopolitical things and other kind of uh, historical facts and and all sorts of movements that you have to follow in order to stay this kind of the best possible consul- consultant for cu- culturalization. Mm-hmm. But is there like technological trends or other trends that you have to follow in order to kind of uh, keep up with uh, your work? There, There is. I mean, like I, I'm watching very closely AI um, and AI, especially with image recognition technology, um, mm. because there's a big part of what I do has to do with pattern recognition and, you know, being able to pick up symbols and other things that are in gaming environments. Um, I would love to see an AI tool that can help me out with that. Mm-hmm. And I, I had plans for something like that over 20 years ago when I was still at Microsoft and we were kind of moving that direction, but it just never happened. But um, I think there is a certain enabling ability Um, that AI can bring and other image recognition technology that could really help game developers maybe at least flag things um, and make a little bit easier to see, but Mm -hmm. we're not quite there yet. Um, But that's my hope. So I I am actively following those technologies because I have ideas that I would like to implement, but I don't think it's quite there yet. Mm. From from the examples I've seen, we're getting really close. I'm saying maybe five years from now, um, that might very well be possible. Yeah. You know, so basically a tool for game developers to basically take this AI bot, run it through your gaming environments, and it'll come back saying, hey, I found all this stuff. Yeah. And, you know, it may or may not be correct at what it found, but at least it can flag things. Yeah, it's like a tiny AI Kate that yeah, <laughs> runs exactly. around the game and tries not to be it, Exactly, yeah. yeah. So in, in a way, it's sort of like in the, in the same way that, um, you know, in... Uh, in Halo, the Halo universe, Cortana was a replica of, of the of the researchers. Like, yeah, I could kind of do the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So if, if someone wants to follow, like, I don't know what your main channels or ways and tools to follow trends in the game industry. Mm-hmm. But if someone wants to follow the same ways, what, what are your tips for the people? Um, I, you know, there's a lot of great media out there. I mean, like Games Beat is, is one that I follow well, like Dean Takahashi's writing, I think is great. Um, you know, gameindustry.biz is another one I follow, uh, quite a bit. Um, other than that, I mean, some of those key sources, I think you should definitely be looking, if you're not already like Newzu, the, the company that pr- produces a lot of reports, I mean, the reports tend to be pricey, but they, they do release a lot of free, like mini reports. I definitely recommend taking a look at those because mm. that's where you see a lot of trend data, you know, and market data that I think is extremely useful, especially having that gives you a good understanding of like which regions of the world are growing and not growing. Yeah. Um, like right now, I mean, still the fastest 
region in the world growing is the MENA region, you know, Middle East, North Africa, mm. and, and well, not just North Africa, but Middle East and Africa. Yeah. And um, a lot of people don't assume that. I mean, it's it's still showing like over 8% year over year growth, whereas areas like North America is only like 2%. Yeah. So a lot of developers that I meet, they keep saying, well, I want, to, I want my game to release in North America and Western Europe because that's where all the attention is and the money, but that's not really true. Mm. I mean, that's maybe the attention is there, but there's a lot of money to be made in, you know, still in Asia, in, in Middle East and Africa, but a lot of developers are not necessarily making their games for those regions. Yeah. Well, yeah, let's let's go and read all the Nizu reports, yeah. I guess, and <laughs> yes. follow that too. Uh, so there, there's so much more to talk about, but uh, time runs out yes. and we have to quit. So <laughs> thank you so much for uh, following back with your lecture. Thank and you. I think that we looked more to the future than to the back, I guess. Yes, so. I guess so. That's where we should be looking anyway, <laughs> for the most part. All right. Thank you. Thank you.